Some people say the metaverse will only be virtual. One day, farmers will use augmented reality to monitor the health of their soil and run irrigation simulations to help ensure the best yields. And urban planners will model traffic solutions in the metaverse to help decrease commute times, paving the way for less congested cities. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more about what Meta is building for the metaverse at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at pharmacypodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. We're coming back to the Pharmacy Podcast dedication to PBM reform and so many pieces of the puzzle, the complexity of what is a pharmacy benefit manager. This is important. So this series has been out for over a year now, and we've had some absolute amazing participants people in the inner circle who really understand the evolution and the business model of our PBMs, of our pharmacy benefit managers. This is the PBM Reform Podcast Series, and I am so excited. This guest today, very special, just to let you know, we've been following uh, on Twitter, on the news, on LinkedIn, on many posts, as well as uh, publications throughout the country, this person's interaction with PBM reform. So once and for all, thank you so much, Dr. Madeline Feldman, for coming on the PBM reform podcast series. Welcome, Dr. Feldman. Todd, it is my pleasure to be here. Um, It's one of my favorite things to talk about. (laughs) That's good. We are fans. I just said we saw you on the news. We also saw you on a recent um, a newspaper article throughout the country because of PBM reform heating up. And before we started recording, you and I were talking about that we are seeing more movement in this today than ever before. I've been in the pharmacy industry for 17 years, and it's been um, catching fire finally. And for us to bring attention to not only our uh, policymakers, but also the patients that we're all serving and and those that are suffering uh, based on the fact that they they re- they expect their Medicaid or their Medicare Part D or their insurance, their private insurance, they expect it to pay for their medications as it's designed to do. And these people are not being covered. They're having to not pay bills. They're splitting tablets. They're not able to get their medication paid for. So now it's become a public health crisis. And people like you who understand and have followed it because of your passion as a provider, it's bringing immense light to this subject. So I am excited 
to get you to give our listeners an overview of what you know at this point. And for those listening who are patients, caregivers, uh, simply you may not un even understand the complex complexity of our healthcare system or a PBM. Dr. Feldman, let's start off with what a PBM is designed to do and the modern day and, and, uh, and really setting the stage for today's conversation. So as you know, PBM stands for Pharmacy Benefit Manager. And if you really just think of those three words, they manage the pharmacy benefits of our insurance. You know, for the longest, it was always just the medical side before drugs became very expensive. I mean, I remember when I was little, because I'm pretty old, you know, seeing a, an invoice from our local pharmacy for, um, you know, I think it was penicillin VK, and it was like a dollar and 25 cents. I mean, it was, it, so we didn't really need anyone to um, sort of what we call adjudicate claims or, you know, keep track of what gets paid by what part of the insurance. So as soon as the pharmacy side, going to the drugstore and picking up your medication started to get kind of complicated, um, PBMs sort of came into existence and uh, were hired by health plans to take care of that side of medication, not the one where you got it in the hospital or at the doctor's office, but if you went to the drugstore and usually your, you know, your local family pharmacy, um, they would start to get complicated. And so these things came into existence. But they have they have grown far beyond adjudicating claims. And they started putting together formularies. Um, formularies are the list of drugs that your insurance company will pay for. And that's kind of how I got involved. The one thing that I've noticed, though, when I go to talk about pharmacy benefit managers, as soon as you get out that first syllable, farm, People think that you're talking about pharmaceutical manufacturers and, oh, yes, I know they those prices are really high. I see why you're fighting against them. It's a completely different entity than the manufacturers. Of course, they point fingers back and forth as to who is responsible for high drug prices. But pharmacy benefit managers, they actually perform a needed service and should be paid for that service. And I think we'll probably talk about that in a little while. But they have grown beyond just adjudicating claims. They are now money-making machines um, and basically utilizing formulary construction, as far as I'm concerned, my patients that need to get medications, um, they use that as a way to make more money, not to provide the most, the safest, the most efficacious, and certainly not the most um, uh, I guess, value for, for my patients. And that's how I got involved in, in looking at PBMs. So there's been a bunch of things that have changed recently. Uh, one of the most confusing rule sets that were changed were the contracts that were given to community pharmacists throughout the country. There's about 21,000 plus in, in the United States. They were, based on this contract, not allowed to tell their patient that they could have got the medication uh, less expensive in another form, whether that be generic or 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 even a, a card or something, and they weren't allowed to discuss pricing, which, I mean, that that's where many of the stomachs turned when it started getting out and the gag clause came to be. And of course, it's been diffused since, but it really showed how far the biggest... Oh 
three PBMs were pushing in order Absolutely. to do nothing but collect additional profits. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I'm not even certain that it really is off the table. Years ago, I, I spoke at a national community pharmacist sort of national meeting, and it was when gag clauses were, you know, kind of coming into the forefront of people hearing about them, maybe 2018, 2017, at least from, you know, those that weren't in the, the pharmacy space. And I would, and I said, well, look, I thought that they, some of the states have actually um, passed laws against that. And they said, well, you know, what they put in the contract is we can't say anything that would reflect poorly on the PBM. You know, they're saying that we can, you know, now tell the patient there is another, you know, way that you could get the drug cheaper, and supposedly that's okay, but in our contract, then they come and tell us, well, by you saying that, that reflects poorly on us. So we are going to either kick you out of network or grab some more fees back from you or do something. So it seems to me the pharmacists deal with whack-a-mole with PBMs the same way we do. Just when you think you've passed a law that somehow, you know, allows patients to have access in another way or in a, in a, in a, in a cheaper way, the PBMs come up with something different. They, they change the rules. They, 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 they move the football in a different direction. The goalpost gets moved back a little bit further. It's they're they're a, a tough, uh, a tough entity to, um, to regulate. And we're seeing that it's very difficult. When the profits and I am not against profit. I'm against profiteering. Mm -hmm. And I know that profits from, from 2017 to 2019, those three big controlling PBMs that push through more than 75% of the total prescription spend in the United States, their, their profits rose to $28 billion, and that's on tax dollars. That's on Medicaid mm -hmm. money. That's on people who can't afford their medications. And therein lies the issue that I'm having is their profit-based approach rather than being administrator. They're no longer administrator when they've reached that level of, of profiteering. You know, and that's, it, it, it came about that, that profits and profiteering seem to be the result of it. Um, and I'm like you, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a free market person and I'm all for, you know, people making a profit on their, uh, their service, what they do. But unfortunately, um, one of the things that I noted when I started looking into um, formulary construction, at least for my patients, I'm a rheumatologist. So, you know, un unfortunately, I have to prescribe a lot of expensive medications. And there was a medication that was coming out that was going to be a sort of a competitor to the biologics. And this was back seven, eight years ago. It was a simple, you know, small molecule could be made in the lab, didn't need living cells like so many of my biologic medications. And we said the to the manufacturer, price this right and it will get used. It's not a biologic. Don't price it like a biologic. And sure enough, you know, now it's been eight years probably it was priced the same as the most profitable biologic that I prescribe. And we went to them and said, you know, I went to the drug rep and I said, why did y'all price it so high? And they said, well, we had to. 
And that sort of started me down the rabbit hole. And that was now probably 2016, 2017 of, well, I, I thought PBMs were there to create a formulary with the lowest price drug. You know, you, you, you go through a P&T committee that would determine whether it was safe and whether it worked. And then supposedly competition was supposed to bring down the price. Well, I am now president of something called the Coalition of State Rheumatology Organizations. And at that time I was on the board and I said, well, we need to bring in some experts on this. So we brought in some ex-executives of both PBMs and insurance companies and started learning from them and from other meetings that I attended that it didn't work that way, that actually the formulary was constructed on um, the highest kickback, what we call a rebate. And then I learned that PBMs had safe harbor from the anti-kickback statute back in the early 90s. So they could receive as much kickback as they wanted to, and there were no legal repercussions. So we started to see things that the higher price drugs were being preferred over the lower price drugs, and they were receiving a percentage of the list price for the rebate. And then there were the fees, the administrative fees, the service fees, the procurement fees, the handling fees, the price protection fees, you name it, there was a fee for it. And, um, and they were all based on the list price of the drug. So the higher the list price, the more money they made. And, you know, and it kind of came out back three years ago, as I'm, I'm sure you remember, when um, two of the large PBMs were either bought by a health insurance company or purchased one themselves. So I'm going to, you know, we'll call it CVS Health. And there was the pharmacy side and the PBM side. CVS Caremark was the PBM side. And if you looked at all their profit and loss, it was the PBM side that made most of the money. And this little PBM CVS Health Caremark managed to cobble together $70 billion to buy Aetna. So I think that speaks to the amount of profit that PBMs make. And all they do is put together formularies, put together pharmacy networks and extract money from pharmacists and um, essentially manufacturers, I don't feel sorry for the manufacturers, but extract money from manufacturers and patients and make lots and lots of money. Thank you. And you were talking about some of the profits uh, we were talking about, but again, I agree. It's a free market. Profits are there, but um, I agree with you. This is not uh, profits. This is profiteering. There was a report that Antonio Chacha put out, and it was part of um, the uh, the whole ongoing study that came out in the beginning of December, which was amazing to see some of the um, analytics and the data that was there. But the point that, that really shook me that – should make everyone understand if you're listening to this inside pharmacy, outside of pharmacy, all you have to be is a graduate of, of the 12th grade to understand the math of what I'm about to say. And that is if I gave you $1 million, I'm the government, and I gave you $1 million, Dr. Feldman, and you are needing to take care of a patient or patient population using that $1 million, depending on what there's, let's say they all have the exact same case that you need to spend time on. And you reported 600,000 of that 1 million. And when they asked to tell you to, 
they came to you and they said, but what did you spend the additional 400000 on? And you had nothing to show them as to where that money came from, just as uh, Mr. Chacha actually came up and was frustrated in the Columbia dispatch saying, even with a dense 28-page analysis, it was most frust the, the most frustrating part was the realization that the details about 40% of PBM revenue could not be calculated. Yeah. And that should be a big waving red flag to anyone and everyone. Huge. Number one is listening to this, but number two, if you pay taxes, this should outrage you. This should anger you that this is taking place. I guess this was maybe now about four or five years ago, the SEC tried to extract out of Express Scripts where their money came from, you know, where, what was one of the biggest sort, where, where were their revenues and, and to try to sort of put it into silos to determine um, what the SEC wanted to determine. They could not, it, it took them a year to ferret out where all the different monies came from. And one of the things that they found was um, at some point, 40% of the revenues for Express Scripts were coming from manufacturers. And they said, now, wait a minute, you said your clients are health plans and employers, but 40% is coming from manufacturers? I mean, they are masters at hiding money. And as you probably know, they've over the last year or so created new entities to hide even more money. You know, there's there's sort of two different spheres that we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the pharmacists and, you know, the Medicaid. And then, then we're talking about just sort of the regular commercial plans with the formularies that they construct there. And let me tell you, they're getting money from, from commercial, they're getting money from the feds, they're getting money from the states. Everyone sends money to the PBMs, but no one can figure out what happens to the money, except let me tell you, I think, um, you know, when we looked at the profits, what was that number that you said, the profits in uh, the PBMs, in uh, the billions? 28, 28, um, wait a second, let me. 28 billion? 20, I think it was 28 million. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's unseemly um, for, 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 for a mere service. You know, people ask me, well, what do you think should be done? How, you know, how do we corral this in? Well, first off, I, I think we need some transparency and um, you know, then that's when we get into, well, the PBMs say transparency softens competition and raises prices. You know, these contracts that we're trying to keep secret, um, whether it's the contracts for Medicaid within the state or the contracts with the manufacturers for commercial formularies, if we, they basically say, if we let those become known, Competition is going to go away and it's going to cause higher prices. Um, I would say, at least from the side that I have been investigating, um, the competition to get onto the formulary is based on the highest kickback, which is a percentage of the list price. So if you look at competition in terms of how it lowers prices, if people are bidding on the lowest, for example, if you're building a house, 
and all the contractors are, you know, are equally qualified and no one's your sister's brother's cousin. Um, the more bids, they tend to underbid each other and you're going to pick the lowest bid if the quality is the same. However, if you're selling your house, um, they have that one day where everyone comes in and puts in their highest bid. So competition is raising prices. And that's exactly what happens to formularies. Um, a few weeks ago, when I testified before an oversight and reform um, forum in, in DC, I gave the example of a one of the big three PBMs, whether it's Express Grip, CVS Caremark, or OptumRx, um, matters not, but I have, a, a, I guess, a recording of their tech explaining to an, uh, a benefit, uh, an employer benefit person who was trying to figure out one of the employees had metastatic prostate cancer. And they saw that the, on the formulary was a, a drug, a, you know, a branded drug for $10,000 for um, metastatic prostate cancer. There was a generic drug for $350, but that wasn't on the formulary. It was excluded from the formulary. Now PBMs say, we put together formularies that offer the lowest net cost. I'm having a really hard time trying to figure out how a $10,000 drug is going to offer a lower net cost than a $350, $400 drug. Todd, maybe you can tell me how you can get a lower net cost from a $10,000 drug. Unless, of course, you're making some money on the kickback of that drug. Um, do you think it just kind of flies over the, the powers that be, whether they're legislators or regulators? Um, that just seems like such an egregious example of how whatever PBMs are doing, it's not bringing down the prices of drugs. Every year, it just keeps going up, and we're just accepting that things are getting more expensive, and that's not the case. It's not uh, following any any sustainable mathematics or realistic mathematics. It's all outside um, because you can't put your finger on it because it's not trackable on purpose as designed to be. And I, I kind of want to make a comment. The, the The legislators that are out there, this has been going on long enough that the excuses of our Senate, of our state representatives, even the governor's offices, the excuse that is too complex to understand is no longer an excuse. And because it's been around long enough and we have organizations um, like Three Access Advisors and uh, the APHA has been pounding this and has data, the NCPA has data, the ASHP has data, like we all have data now. And and we know that it is finally causing major issues that are in the ecosystem of all things pharmacy care, including staffing issues that have now become a part of this because the entities don't wanna let go of their profits. Therefore, they're changing slightly changing because uh, the economy is a, is a living, breathing animal. And if you make the slightest change in something, it has a ripple effect. It's now having a ripple effect on the almost the entities eating itself. So the PBMs that actually own pharmacies, which is another ludicrous idea to allow the organizations that are setting the pricing to actually become the dispensers of the product, 
with yes. no conflict of interest in place, which there's every conflict of interest in place in this entire, you know, model that's just run amok. You senators, you state representatives, you governors that are out there, if you are listening or if your team is listening or if your lobby people are listening, you cannot use complexity as an excuse anymore because we have enough data to show it in simplistic black and white that this is white collar crime and it's crimes against humanity and it's crimes against our patients. It's also crimes against our pharmacists and the staff of these organizations, these pharma, these retail community, big chain pharmacies that are experiencing such immense workloads to keep up with pumping out the almighty dollar prescription fee that's being settled by the PBMs that they're pushing it so hard that it's actually causing these pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to fall ill, to um, to go under immense amounts of stress. And there's even a case right now being researched and being studied about someone losing their life because they stayed um, on shift and they didn't leave because they didn't think that they had the ability to leave and they needed medical attention. Nobody else was there. They fell ill and they passed away. So. This has reached a boiling point that we Absolutely. cannot say that anymore. No, no question about it. When you were when you were talking about the conflict of interest with the PBM, um, you know, a, actually owning the pharmacy and how that is a conflict of interest, it reminds me of what the Federal Trade Commission said back in the '90s when we had, uh, you know, Merck Medco, where the actual manufacturer own the PBM. Well, back then the Federal Trade Commission stepped in and said, you can't make the drugs and then, you know, decide formularies and decide, you know, who gets what drug. Well, they need to do the same thing right now. You can't own pharmacies and then decide how pharmacists are going to be paid um, because there's a direct conflict, conflict of interest. You know, I've been very disappointed over the years, yes, in our leg legislators, but I think the Federal Trade Commission has really dropped the ball, um, at least in the past, when it came to PBMs. It's, it's as if they never found a PBM that they didn't like. Um, I remember going to one of the PCMA, the trade group for PBMs, um, forums in DC, hearing one of the attorney advisors to the Federal Trade Commission actually coming out and saying, basically, we can't have transparency for PBMs because it'll raise prices. You didn't give any reasons how or whatever, um, you know, how that would take place, how it, he said it softens competition. Well, we've already showed that competition raises prices. We may need a little bit of softening competition. But I think the same decision that the Federal Trade Commission made back in the 90s with manufacturers not being able to own PBMs, I think that they should step in and see the conflict of interest with large PBMs, you know, owning and having their own set of, of uh, pharmacies. It's a clear, clear cut um, conflict of interest. Um, I've heard them claim that they pay the community pharmacists the same what they pay their own pharmacies. But I've seen things that would negate that. Um, is that what you found, Todd? I have, and we've been tracking many pharmacists that work in the chain environment and how things are starting to change um, just in the last 12 to 18 months. 
Um, and it seems that the independent community pharmacies are getting a lot more um, unsolicited resumes from pharmacists mm. in their communities because they run their pharmacy. Not every single person in the entire world that runs a pharmacy would definitely run it the exact same way, especially if you're a community pharmacy owner, you're going to do something a little different. But they're running it from a a service to the community because they've been in that community for years. They're part of the community. They're not just a gargantuan, you know, money engine that rolls in and sets up pharmacy and, and you know, and, and once again looks looks to it as a profit enabling machine instead of it being a, a healthcare service. I would like to understand a little bit more about non-medical switching. Okay. If you could explain to the audience what that is and how perhaps these larger PBMs are encouraging this practice. So as we talked about in sort of in the beginning, um, they pharmacy benefit managers um, set up the formularies. They make up the list of drugs that will be paid for by your insurance company. And when it comes to expensive drugs, I mean, let's face it, if it ain't on the formulary, nobody's going to take it. So manufacturers compete, you know, seriously to get onto the formulary. And basically it's whichever drug the PBM makes the most money on. Don't buy this lowest net cost. Yes, it's the lowest net cost to the PBM. So what happens is you've got a formulary that's all set up. Someone buys, whether it's the employer or whether it's an individual um, um, plan, you know you have a certain disease, your medication that you're on is, is covered. Um, and there was an example by, it was a, a young uh, woman who was on an epilepsy drug. Um, she was a high schooler. And in the middle of her senior year in high school, the PBM basically got a better offer from a different manufacturer that they would make more money on a particular drug. So what they did was they would they dropped the drug that this young girl was on in the middle of a plan year and substituted the drug that um, that they made more money on. I mean, that's the bottom line that cut them a bigger check. So here, this young girl, you can say, well, she didn't really have to switch, you know, and that's how PBMs get around the legality. They say, doctor, we're not practicing medicine. We're not forcing your patient to switch. You can still continue to provide that, that prescribe that drug for your patient. We're just not going to pay for it. But when we're talking about, you know, medications that cost hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars a month, as I said before, if it's not on the formulary, no one can take it. So this is a non-medical switch that happened for this young girl. There was no medical reason for her to switch to another drug. So therefore, the switch was made essentially on affordability issues. She switched to the different medicine. It did not control her seizures. She started having seizures. She had to be hospitalized for it. She missed her entire senior year and was unable to go to college the next year um, that she had been planning to go to. And this was all for profit of the PBM. They'll say, no, 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 we, we are, we're saving more money. 
let me give you the definition of how um, PBMs define saving. And I, I use different kinds of commodities, but let's just take dresses, for example. So say you have a $1,000 dress and a $100 dress, and they're basically exactly the same dress. And both of them are offered at 50% off. Which dress do you save the most money on? Well, if you're a PBM putting together a dress formulary, you're going to save, say you save a lot more money on the $1,000 dress because you save $500. Whereas the $100 dress, you're only saving 50. They never talk about the actual price of the medicine. They couch everything in terms of savings. And, and yes, they probably do save a lot more money, for example, on that metastatic prostate uh, uh, drug with they're getting 50% off of a $10,000 drug. But that is the source of non-medical switching. It has nothing to do with the safety of the drug. It has nothing to do with the efficacy of the drug. It's all in the kickback. And I heard as much from the national medical director for one of the big three PBMs. I got a, a telephone conversation with him about a problem, a national problem that I was talking with him about. And he said, look, Dr. Feldman, we run these drugs through our pharmacy and you know, uh, uh, tech committees. And when they come out of that, we make sure they're safe, we make sure they work, but then it goes to contracting. And everything after that is all about contracting, which means everything after that is all about profits. So, you know, when you have a formulary, say, let's just take rheumatoid arthritis, the disease that I treat. There are three uh, drugs that have the same mechanism of action. One costs 30,000 a year, one costs 65,000 a year, and one costs 75,000 a year. Which is the one that you think has the highest penetrance on the formularies? Yes, the $75,000 a year one. I mean, we don't have a drug pricing crisis. We have a formulary construction crisis. And the only reason why the $75,000 one is there because they save, quote unquote, more money. Now, whether you're talking about pharmacists um, in terms of transparency within a state in terms of the Medicaid system, whether you're talking about commercial systems, anytime you say transparency, the first words out of their mouth of the PBMs is, premiums will go up, drug prices will go up, as if God comes down and increases the premiums. No, their profits are being cut back, so they have to charge somebody more to make up those profits. And, I, you know, and I'm being just flat out honest about it. That's what it's all about. It has nothing to do. I mean, why else would you switch a patient who's stable on a drug in the middle of the year, saving you money because they're not in the hospital, why would you switch that to another drug if, if, if you're not, it's because you make more money on the other drug. That is criminal. That goes beyond just a civil, um, you know, criminal mismanagement of funds or, or civil mismanagement of funds. That actually is criminal. Um, I gave another example. And this would have to do again with formulary construction, how one of the major PBMs heard about this test that would allow patients to uh, find out if they were going to respond in their rheumatoid arthritis to a particular kind of medication. And it turns out that particular kind of medication makes them more money than any other of their other drugs on formularies. 
Well, when they heard that this test was available, they went to employers in one of the smaller PBMs and said, if you offer that test to the employees who have rheumatoid arthritis, we're going to take back your rebates. Now, that actually is criminal. Um, they may be able to say, well, you know, our fiduciary responsibility is to our shareholders, so we have to do what's in the best interest of our shareholders. Well, then we need to get a whole new regimen. We need to get another paradigm of how this is going to work because you're taking a patient's life and you're, you're choosing profits over that patient's life. Should we take PBMs and the philosophy, the definition, and harden it so that you can't wiggle out of the definition of what is a pharmacy benefit manager? And we, should we institute a federal law in the state in all the states through 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 one kind of governance, whatever that may be, maybe CMS, that says you can no longer be, you have to go um, 5013C, you have to go nonprofit as a PBM and you cannot be profit anymore. Do you think we should do that? I I think if we just let them make a profit, but but again, like you stated in the beginning, not profiteering. Let them have a fair market fixed rate uh, service fee for what they do, because they do do something and they're needed. And there are transparent fee-based PBMs out there, but they're dwarfed by, um, I'm telling you, the big three PBMs, the ones that have 80% of our population here um, sort of in their control um, are powerful, very powerful when it comes to federal and state government. I mean, I've, I've gone around to, to various states to talk to the, um, you know, to the, to whether it's state senators or state representatives, and you can tell which ones the PBMs have gotten to. Before I even open my mouth, they're going, oh, so you're just in the pocket of a pharmaceutical manufacturer. Before I've said anything. Mm -hmm. And no, I'll be the first one to say the manufacturers are, you know, uh, they're, they're working hand in hand. They point fingers at each other, but I'm going to tell you that smokescreen is just to keep people from figuring out exactly what's going on. What about the influence over the market and the result that this is having on our independently owned community pharmacies? Can you kind of go into that trickle effect and, and ripple effect? Well, I mean, I, one of my best friends is um, owned her own community pharmacy um, outside of New Orleans, closer to Baton Rouge. You know, it was in a small, I wouldn't say rural area, but, you know, it wasn't in the big city. And uh, little by little, she could see, you know, what was happening. She had her loss leaders in her, in her pharmacy that would bring people in. Um, but she finally started getting um, offers from CVS, you know, we'll, we'll buy your pharmacy from you. And she didn't sell it to CVS. She did sell it to another sort of maybe younger person that was willing to put in a little bit more work. But she, I mean, I, I and this is like 10 years ago. And um, I mean, I could see what they were doing to pharmacists back then. It didn't dawn on me that they would do this the same thing to patients in terms of, you know, cheating them out instead of just cheating them out of their money, cheating them out of their money and their health. Um, so yes, I have seen, and she told me about friends of hers that have had to close or sell out to one of the big three, um, just because 
I would have patients tell me, you know, if I don't use their mail order, if I don't use, you know, this particular PBM's mail order, either A, I've got to pay a lot more for the drug, B, what my um, what I pay is not going to count towards my deductible, or C, it's mandated. The only way it's paid for is if I use their mail order. So I thought the vertical integration was not supposed to cause what they're calling steering, where you actually take all of these patients and, you know, gently nudge them or, you know, make it financially impossible if they don't go to the, the mail order. Um, and they just basically plumb take the business away from the pharmacists or they hit them with so many of what I had a really hard time understanding what DIR fees were for the longest, but it's, amazing how at the end of the year or the end of six months or something, the PBM can come back to the pharmacist and say, oh, by the way, um, you now owe us, you know, $30,000. Yep. How would you ever be able to run a business when someone can just come back at you because you didn't dot an I um, and uh, reclaim all that money? It's, yep. it's, it's a it's a bad situation out there, and I think I do think Congress Congress uh, people are becoming more aware of uh, that kind of egregious behavior from the PBMs when it comes to local community pharmacies. So, what message, and and us wrapping up today, um, what message are you projecting, uh, trying to get out there to um, to federal to state? officials um, like our Senator Casey here in Pennsylvania, um, Senators Cassidy and Kennedy in your home state. I want to help educate, but I also want to hold responsibility as a constituent myself that they that they really take action to do something to save lives of people that are on life-saving medications, as well as the curbing of the tax runaway freight train that is the profits of the PBMs, the three big premiums. So in in your closing thoughts, what would you what would you like to state to these these people in in, in our legislation? I think one of the first things that we have to state is that this is not a um, a party issue. This is not a red versus blue uh, R versus D issue at all. This has absolutely nothing nothing to do with party affiliation. Um, and this is not one side is to blame and the other side isn't to blame. This is not taking sides. This is actually trying to get at uh, educating them because I'm I'm just hoping that it's ignorance that that that, that has caused such a sort of a, a stalemate with nothing happening. Educating them that it's not as complex as the, the pharmacy benefit managers want you to think it is, um, educating them that transparency is what we need first, to see, follow the money. I mean, that's basically what you need to do is follow the money. Um, and then baby steps. You know, are we worried about community pharmacists 
going out of business? Are we worried about pharmacists who work at one of the big uh, pharmacy chains? You know, you know, obviously at the worst losing their life or, but, you know, wanting to leave because it's like a sweatshop to work there. Are we, are we worried that we call, you know, we're living in a drug pricing crisis and yet a $10,000 drug is preferred on a formulary by the PBM over a $350 generic? Um, if we really are interested in those things, take away the, the smoke and mirrors, do something as simple as, <laughs> this ain't going to be simple, um, mandating that the service that the PBM offers is a flat fee, market-based um, amount of money, not a percentage of the list price of the drug. Number two, at least like we have on the medical side where patients pay their coinsurance on a discounted rate. You know, when you go in to get a, a, an appendectomy, Blue Cross Blue Shield has already got a discounted rate from the hospital and you pay your 20% on that. Not so with PBMs, not so on the pharmacy side. You pay your 20% copay on the $10,000, which is why we need copay cards. And that's a whole nother conversation. Um, start with baby steps like that. And at least then the patients will benefit. You're going to have to shut your ears when you say, when they start saying about raising premiums and make it so that the, um, the, the PBMs have to live like everybody else. And we just can't, I can't raise my fees. If my electric bill goes up, why should they be able to raise premiums? If some of their profits are cut back because community pharmacists don't have to pay as high of a DIR fee. I mean, I know that's that's kind of complicated and that's pie in the sky, wishful thinking, but let's start with breaking it down and adding transparency. And hopefully once they see what's really going on, they'll follow what's right and and not who gives them the biggest campaign contribution. Yes, and when when you when you see in the national news that the Medicaid managers, the the largest Medicaid manager, um, they settled fraud allegations with a fifth state. Um, the uh, Kansas state um, was the fifth one, and that was a twenty-seven point six million dollar settlement. And and you know, Centene, it, it, that's not going to be the last for them to to kind of manage with so many of the states rushing to do their audits. These settlements totaled one hundred and fifty-four million, and all of those follow a settlement. Um, with Ohio, the only state to to really go out there and 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 blast them in the in the jaw with a with an actual suit of eighty eight million, and and I want to just say this is going to continue the 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 armor has been pierced of the PBMs and it's we're going to do everything we can to get the messaging out. We know that the APHA has been enormous in in supporting. PBM reform, as well as the NCPA, um, Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, who's a, a podcast uh, client of of ours to to sponsor the programming to get it out to more uh, state representatives. They actually have community pharmacy owners um, scheduling uh, meetings with their state representatives to educate them onto what is happening, bringing them into the pharmacy and literally showing them what happens day-to-day uh, -day in their operations, which I think community pharmacies out there that are listening, please continue to educate your state representatives about, about what you do for your communities. 
and how the PBM uh, with their hands around your financial necks are squeezing uh, ever so tightly to keep you from functioning based on their thirst for profits, which is, is not what our uh, tax money should be used for. It should be used to help our citizens and keep our nation healthy. And like I said, uh, Dr. Madeline Feldman, this is a public health crisis. It needs to be taken uh, that seriously, and it, it's going to continue to cause it's going to cause lives. We're going to lose lives over this uh, over the shenanigans. So, it's been an absolute honor to have you finally on the PBM Reform Podcast series. This will not be your last time. We have to have you come back with a panel discussion um, about what's going to be taking place over the next three to four months in multiple state cases. And I'd love to hear um, what you have to say, Madeline. Um, Madeline, you've been an absolute pleasure and I thank you. We're excited about maybe some more Supreme Court decisions. Maybe we can talk about that next time. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Madeline <laughs> Feldman, thank you so much for being part of the Pharmacy Podcast Nation with our PBM Reform Podcast Series. Um, we follow you and are big fans. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.